Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We're going to hit our sponsors here in just a second, then jump into the episode. But before we do, make sure you stick around throughout the end of the interview and check out the show notes for great opportunities for associateships, partnerships, and more. If you're a practice owner, you want to find great people, and you want to list a job opportunity or just looking for certain things that your peers out there that are veterinarians could benefit from, feel free to shoot me an email. Isaiah at veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. I will do my best to get those up at the end of different episodes. There's no charge for that. My role, my job is to connect good people with good people. So with that, we will hit our sponsors and be right into the interview. Have you ever walked into a space and thought, wow, this is beautiful. There's a reason for that. Architecture has this innate ability to impact emotions and perceptions. My friends at Apex Design Build bring beautiful and functional spaces for veterinarians nationwide. Apex is a fourth generation family run company that is fully integrated from the design, architecture, and construction process to help you mitigate risks, eliminate surprises, save money, save time, and reduce the effort on your project. Check out their amazing work and have access to their square footage calculator to help you plan your expansion or new build. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer and learn more about Apex Design Build. Tired of waiting for ownership decisions to happen? Frustrated with promises broken? Enter Innovative Management Veterinary Solutions, or IVMS. IVMS's goal is to grow privately held, profitable, unique hospitals across Canada, allowing you, the veterinarian, to focus on medicine and not the practice nuances. They handle accounting, bookkeeping, marketing, advertising, human resources, and so much more. The plan is easy as one, two, three. First, you come work joining the leadership team for a year to learn the systems and processes, ensuring the fit is right for everyone. Second, you enter into a 50-50 partnership to launch your hospital. Again, you help drive where you go. Three, work together, launch, and scale your hospital. Questions? Head to the link in the show notes for more information, how to connect, and see if this is the right opportunity you've been waiting for. Check out Innovative Management Veterinary Solutions. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. Hint, they're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. Hey, drama. Yes, we do too. That's why it doesn't exist here. It's the only core value that is non-negotiable. Culture is key at Point Grey and Fraser View Veterinary Hospital located in Vancouver, British Columbia, an outdoors person's paradise. Privately owned, fear-free certified practice, the only fear-free practice in Vancouver. No catches, no hidden terms, no negative accrual, no non-compete, and fully transparent. So what do we expect? Sense of humor? We love to laugh, tell jokes, and banter. Be adaptable? Strong team-oriented personality drive and willingness to excel. What should you expect? you love snacks? Who doesn't? We have a staff room filled with a variety of snacks. We've got you covered. How about coffee or tea? We have you covered. Enjoy a two-month schedule made in advance so you can actually plan your life. No nights or Sundays guaranteed. Salary up to $170,000, including 20 to 25% commission. Visa sponsorship considered, as well as opportunities for ownership. So apply today for Point Grey and Fraser View Veterinary Hospital. Link in the show notes. Why do most banks always seem to be impersonal? slow to answer questions, or give you the runaround on getting money needed for your dreams. Enter Panacea Financial. Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Whether you're a veterinarian in training, practice owner, or aspire to be one, someday... 
Panacea Financial is designed specifically for you. It was started by two doctors who were frustrated in working with banks and so started their own to serve their community. With common sense lending guidelines and fast decisioning, they've helped doctors all across the country start, grow, and acquire their dream practice. Looking to buy into a practice? Panacea helps doctors with practice buy-in loans that are funded in a matter of days, not weeks or months. If you're ready to join the thousands of doctors nationwide who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit panaceafinancial.com today to see how they can get you started with your dreams. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. This is your first podcast? It's my first podcast. Sweet. So today I'm joined by Dr. Dan Gray. This is a VMX special episode as well. And he is the owner of General Vet Animal Hospital in uh, cold and snowy Green Bay, Wisconsin. Dan, thanks for uh, joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I listen to podcasts all the time. It's first time podcast, but long time listener. There you go. So the first question I think everyone's dying to know. So Aaron Rodgers, did he play his last game in Green Bay when they lost the Lions? What, a couple Sundays ago? By the time this comes out? Since I feel safe here in Orlando saying this, <laughs> man, I hope so. Uh, I think so, but I thought he wasn't going to come back this year. Um, with the temper tantrum he was throwing through the entire offseason, I thought he was grandstanding, trying to get money. So maybe he did get the money. I don't know. But no, I think it's time for him to, to move on. Yeah. So I've been a long suffering Lions fan. So I had to enjoy that a little bit and have a handful of friends that are big Packers fans. So I bet that was sweet. It was nice, (laughs) even though it was a little bit of a bummer since the Seahawks still got to go in. But at least Aaron Rodgers is not as bad as Tom Brady. So you lose half or most of your money in FTX gone (laughs) and you get divorced. That sucks. I mean, he's had, I think Brady's had a, a worse year for sure from the pockets perspective. But yeah, Rodgers Never cared for him because of the kind of the attitude that I've always seen. Never loved that. Yeah, I think up till the Super Bowl, I think everybody got behind him because they're so excited that uh, somebody was good to replace Favre. Because when I moved into Green Bay, the Packers had had such a long streak up till Favre just being terrible that they thought they were going to go back into those doldrums. And that's why I think the Packer love affair for Aaron Rodgers is so strong. It's because they thought they were going back into the abyss. And then they got their Brett Favre kind of lookalike. Right after that. And then he's, what's interesting is if you see the stats, he ended the same way Brett Favre did. I don't know the exact numbers you can look it up, but it was like Brett Favre went for six for 12 for his last game and threw an interception as the final pass and so did Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. So maybe just to avoid that, he needs to come back. Well, and that's true. And I would say Green Bay and Indianapolis, very similar from that standpoint. I'm not necessarily a Colts fan, but you had Peyton Manning, you had Andrew Luck, and then it's been just years of like, terrible quarterback play basically. And so that I think makes complete sense. And I promise this is a veterinary medicine podcast, but we're going to talk NFL for at least an hour. And I'm sure, kidding. but you talked about moving to green Bay. So you're not originally from green Bay. Is that home? Correct. I'm not from green Bay. I grew up in Eastern Iowa, um, went to Iowa state university, then went to Dubuque for two very educational, but stressful years. I learned a lot through some struggles. Then the environment was very similar to this environment for hiring at that time. So that was 2006 when I decided we were going to leave the Eastern Iowa town we were working in. And if you had a veterinary degree and a pulse, like it has nothing to do with my skills. I visited 11 hospitals, got 10 job offers. So I really kind of had my pick and Green Bay had the level of medicine that was really important to me was a small enough town. I don't like big cities. Small enough town I could practice medicine I wanted to, but not live in just urban 
disaster. And it had zoo and exotic wildlife medicine, which I was really attracted to. And I like to fish and hunt, which I know sounds kind of uh, counterintuitive with the fishing and hunting and wildlife and zoo medicine, but it is what it is. I'm a contradiction. (laughs) So then this clinic, the top of that was um, I had a possibility for ownership. It had to be an option. They didn't have to be a guarantee. So that just ended up fitting and we got well along enough and well enough that, uh, yeah, we've been there ever since. Cool. So you talked about the challenges. You call it Dubuque. Am I saying that right? This, yes. Okay. Dubuque is where we originally went. And that was your first associateship out of Iowa State. Correct. What was the big learning lesson there? What was the thing that you kind of mentioned it, but I got to pull that back out. Sure. It was all encompassing. I can be treated pretty badly and be fine with it. It's if you treat people around me badly is what I don't like. So it was when my, my wife, who became the office manager, found out that our boss was flying in Atlantic Salmon and her boyfriend on the clinic's money. And I got to hear across the hall, like a shouting match with the head technician over, I kid you not, a five cent race. And I was like, this is the type of person we're working with. Hmm. And we didn't, Dubuque was a very clicky town, which was kind of weird. Like if you weren't from Dubuque, you're considered an outsider. And I talked to people like that for, who'd been there for like 15 years and they're still considered outsiders. So it was just kind of a weird place to live. Um, it was a good experience, but it just wasn't someplace we were going to be long-term. And we sat down when, actually, the reason we moved, my wife and I read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? And that's what we decided, okay, we knew something was wrong. We couldn't put our finger on it. So we just kind of read that book back to back in the same night. And we just kind of looked at each other. I was like, do you want to raise our kids here? We didn't have kids at the time. She's like, no. I was like, well, there's the answer. So that's when we started our job search. Totally. And so you talked about, 11 interviews, 10 job offers, yep. ownership had to be on the table. Yep. You were very clear with that through the interview process. Correct. I guess, how did you frame it? Just basically like, if you won't give me ownership, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm kidding. But <laughs> how do you convey that? Because I think it's a struggle for a lot of younger veterinarians to speak up and say, this is what I want. This is what I value. And I want ownership, even if I'm not quite sure exactly what all that entails and how to go through that, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. I have some lessons learned. But how did you uh, make sure that they knew this is really important to me. So I can tell you what it worked for me. And I'm learning as I do this journey of going from associate to owner, that my journey almost 20 years ago is completely different than the journey now. They're like, not the same. So I'm still learning how to relate to, I don't know how to phrase it with sounding derogatory, but the the younger generation or just... You, you can know, hate the, on millennials. The, it's no, all right. no, 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 no. I don't hate on millennials because they're going to need to save our country. So we got to invest in them. <laughs> but it's just a different mindset. It's a different way they were trained. I'm finding out the way they were schooled. I mean, it's just completely different. It's like apples to oranges. So I'm learning that trying to be a better boss. But back to your question. So I don't know if this is something that's going to happen, but every single, I wouldn't respond to a job offer unless it said ownership possibility for the right person. And it was phrased a bunch of different ways, but that had to be in the ad. I wasn't even going to pick up the phone. And it was like today where it's pages and pages and pages of ads. Sure. Back then they had to respond by email too, which was kind of a big deal. But what's funny is the place I ended up picking was the only one I sent to that required a written resume. Now that's the one I ended up picking, but it was like, I didn't want to mess with the antiquated practices who wouldn't accept, wouldn't respond to an email. So again, contradiction. Yeah. So I don't know if that's how that would work. I know for me, 
my newest associate, she asked, hey, is there an option for ownership? So from the flip side, because I really, really, really don't ever want to be thought to be a liar or hypocrite, I try very hard not to be that. I don't know how to answer that question because that also boils down to, well, what's your risk tolerance? What's your understanding of the financial part of this? What's your interest in the business part of this? So yeah, of course. You know, a friend of mine when I was growing up said, there's a price for everything except your wife. <laughs> there's no price for that, but yeah. everything else is for sale at the right price. Sure. So yeah, of course, ownership is a possibility. But I also think if it's not a possibility, if you're an owner and you're like, nope, I'm going to sell it to corporate because I want the big bucks. I think you need to be upfront about that because you're messing with people's lives and that's not cool. So that's, for me, bring it up to me. I want to know because that's actually one of the things that I struggle with is the future. You know, you got corporate money on one side and you got the right thing to do with your young associates and the next generation coming up. And right now, those two things are almost mutually exclusive. What's interesting is from the business owner perspective is if you even talk about the exit strategy and the C word comes up, corporate, like I'm afraid my associates will just quit. So you can't even evaluate really what's out there without panicking everybody who works for you. Yeah. So... And I know a couple of the corporations at least give lip service to, they want to offer equity. Well, I kind of want to copy that. So I kind of got to dig into how they do that. You know, can I sell out pieces or have ownership equity or something like that? You know, how does that work? You know, do you, how much control do you have? There's a lot of stuff in there that I think would work as a hybrid model. It's not just selling to one associate with a bank loan. Because I know when I purchased, I wanted it to be my own thing. I didn't necessarily want the boss still being the boss. And mainly because I don't think I could turn it off. Like if I sold to an associate and then all of a sudden I'm the employee again, I just don't think that would work. I think I'd be fired like in three minutes. <laughs> I always joke that I'm, I, I am on the, the path to being as unemployable as possible. Like yeah. I, I got to call, I have some semblance of say, and yeah. maybe that changes at some point, but I don't think it will. Like right. I just don't want to have someone else dictating the direction of where things go. So, you know, and that's actually interesting. So, you know, thinking through, how would you sell off part of Vincere? Let's say you're competing with, say, Merrill, who wants to buy you, or your newest associate. Merrill's going to throw big money at you if they really want you, whereas your newest associate might only be have a bank loan or you're taking the risk. Sure. If you're taking the risk, if you still want control over that asset, because you still need to get paid. Yeah. That just creates an interest. And then you add all the type A egos of veterinarians in there. I think it can work. I just don't know how to do it and end up being successful without a bunch of hurt feelings, broken hearts, and bankruptcy. I think a lot of times, so many of these like partnerships and these things that don't work, it's, and Josh and I, my partner and I, we've had this conversation where we both will get into it with each other at times about different things, right? But we also understand at the end of the day, the only way that we fail is if we destroy each other. We've said that to each other, even when we're pissed off, right? Like the only way that we fail is if we destroy each other through being, you know, letting ego get in the way or letting things happen. Like we can always solve what's going on. I think more people need to think about what's the opportunity behind it. It's not just the, the money side. Obviously that's important. You want to make sure you can sustain your lifestyle and all that other stuff and knowing what you need. And that kind of goes into the exit planning, financial planning piece. But at the end of the day, these failed succession plans or I'm selling to corporate, a lot of times it's why does someone want ownership ultimately get to the root of that? Is it, do they want say, or do they just want to make more? If they just want to make more money and they're like, hey, I have student loans, I have kids, I got stuff I want to do, find a way with a profit sharing. You can keep 100% of the ownership and have some sort of phantom way for them to have a tie in that, or they really want to drive and dictate everything. I think one of the key things as an owner also, 
you took the entrepreneurial risk. You busted your home. We've had these conversations offline, yes, right? And so you're not just going to give it away. And I think for people that have never owned, sometimes they don't understand the sacrifices that have been made, whether it's missed things for family or you just go without because you're like, well, it's early on and I don't know if I can run payroll if I don't pay myself for a while or I'm going to forego X, Y, Z. And so it's hard to then just be like, yeah, come in and you just get to get a bank loan and now you make the same amount that I do and you get some ownership too. It's like, you don't want them to have to struggle, but it's also like you shouldn't just get to go in the fast lane, right? It's like, okay, we got to square this. Going back, one thing I wrote down when you're talking about it, like, how do you sell? In Wisconsin, I know each state is different. Can non-veterinarians own the hospital? I'm pretty sure they can. Okay. Because one of the things, and I'll say it here because it holds me accountable, I want to dig in more to ESOPs. So the Employee Stock Ownership Plan and those type of structures where everyone can have some ownership in the hospital. It could be the CSR, it could be the techs. It gives, it changes it from job to career. And I think that also can make a really interesting way from a tax efficiency. You have to be big enough from a hospital perspective and like, you know, dollars and cents and multiple dollars, like that will help. But an ESOP could be an interesting way. And so one of the things I want to do, we're here at VMX, we're just talking about CE, CE for Isaiah, right? When I was at Merrill, I went to one a long time ago when I was just a, a wee lad. And it was the CPAs basically saying how hard it is and you should just come ask them because it was too hard for anyone in the room to just come tell us and we'll handle it. And I'm like, okay, like I want to understand more, give me more information. So I think ESOP could be an interesting way to say, how do I reward the team that's helped me build this without having to forego the money? Because to your point, no one as an owner that's taking all this risk should be like, oh, well, you know, it's only $7 million difference. I should just eat that and be happy because this is what I want to do. It's like, that's a lot of money that you could do a lot of good with. Yeah. And it's not just that you want to have the swimming pool full of gold, right? To right. swim around with and be like, ah, oh, this is great. But yeah, I think it's hard to figure out how to exit. And it's easy to talk about. And I've talked about it lots in this podcast, but when you get into the, the situation, it's really, really tricky. With your acquisition, how did it go? What did you learn in those conversations that you'd be like, shoot, if I was a young associate that's having these conversations, you should address these things, or this was something that I missed, or this is what worked really well for us. And every situation is going to be different, but any thoughts? A couple thoughts, and I guess redirect me if I'm kind of off on the tangent. The couple things that I learned is that there's kind of two types of veterinary clinics that are for sale. There's the clinic that I'm trying to make, and there's the clinic that I bought. And the clinic that I bought, and I think it's the way that the owner treats it. You know, one of my favorite books, I'm probably going to throw out a bunch of book titles, but start with why. Why are you doing what you're doing? And I think it's even more important to understand why the person across the table is doing what they're doing. And to find that out, the best book for that is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. So as a generalization with all the dangers of generalizations, a lot of the boomers, I think, have either built valuable cash flowing businesses that are worth a ton, or they owned a business that was their personal ATM. And there's nothing wrong with that. You buy your business, you do what you want. But when you're trying to sell your personal ATM, understand that you took all the good stuff out. All that money flowing into you to buy whatever it is in boats, ski trips, whatever you're entitled to, because it's your money, you didn't reinvest into the practice. And so in order for me to get that, I got to figure out what you're doing, start from where you are at, which is usually you have a 20 year head start. 
and then try to create that cash flow. And then I don't get to reap that benefit. I got to reinvest it if I want to make it better. So I think there's a lot of probably boomer hurt feelings and these no low practices because you've been cashing it in and, and living great. Again, I don't blame you for it, but you can't blame us when we're coming in and buying your ATM that that ATM is dry. All right. What I'm trying to build is a continuous perpetual motion ATM machine that the minute you take over, it's kicking out the same amount of money as when I is when it was here. We've taken, we've owned it for about three years and I'm actually proud of this. I tell my people this way more often than they want to hear, <laughs> but I think out of, let's say, I think we've owned it for 36 months, give or take, we've probably taken profits maybe for 12 months of it and every other dollar. I'm the lowest paid vet in the business. We don't take profits, but our payday is coming. So what we are doing is we are building the practice. We're hiring the people. I'm moving from a work in the business to work on the business perspective, which means I'm not going to get paid. I got to pay somebody else to do my job. And we're going to build a new building. We're going to make this thing a perpetual motion machine. And that takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and a lot of delayed gratification. So what I learned is I ended up buying a personal ATM and with somebody who had kind of the idea that everybody worked for her. Whereas I hope it comes across to my, to my staff, but everybody works with me. And I think that that is a huge, huge difference. One of the first things we put in, and I'm again, very proud of this is we have a bonusing system, not just for doctors, everyone in the practice. We draw a line. Everybody sees what we make every single month, which I know would scare a lot of veterinarians. Hmm. We put it, it's in a graph, in a line. And if it's just the rolling 12 median, it's the rolling 12 average of our revenue. And if it's above the line, if we close $30,000 above the line, they get 10% of it. $3,000 is split amongst the staff based on the hourly working. And the reason I think that was powerful is when we were going through COVID, I added staff. I had another doctor. We were overwhelmed. Now they have to train this new doctor. It's new systems. They're putting up with a ton. And you know what? Most owners would look at, well, that new doctor's coming in, bringing in 400, 500, 600,000. Why are you sharing that with the rest of the staff? Well, they're suffering too. They're helping you train this doctor. They're working on the new flows, the new attitudes. It's stressful for everybody. And when everybody succeeds, I think that's why we have almost no turnover. I mean, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. I was like, so tell me about uh, retention. <laughs> right. <You laughs> that's know, the issue. No one wants to stay. Well, maybe you need to look in the mirror. <laughs> right. Right. And that's a hard truth too. Maybe you're not a good boss and it's more than just paying. But Absolutely. Continue. So that's one of the two changes we made. And the other huge change was it's a, a book called uh, Turn the Ship Around. There's a nine minute YouTube video where he goes through and it's one little hand drawn. I think there's a, like a doodle or... I think there's a name for it. It's everybody has to watch that video within the first day or two of their arrival. We actually had, I'm convinced a couple people come in and then quit because they saw this system. I hadn't realized yet it was probably different enough that there are some people who can't handle it. There are some people who just want to be told what to do and do it. There are other people who get their value out of contributing. And if you're not willing to contribute and think and go through all those struggles, you're not going to make it here. And I think people just ran, there's a couple who just ran screaming out of the clinic. They had no <laughs> idea what was going on. And I didn't show them this video. 
And one of the key points of that video is like, if a lot of people come in and say, well, who's in charge here? You just see everybody, nobody looks like they're in charge. Well, that's because in our clinic, the people who have the information make the decisions. So I'm not going to be making most of the decisions when it comes to the front desk. I'm going to give intent. This is what I want my clients to be treated like. Now you guys go and make this happen. And that gives ownership and leadership, which is something you can't give with pay. I mean, I've been told, again, I'm not a millennial, so I don't know, but that's one of the key drivers for people in our profession, as well as people in the millennial generation, is making a difference and having some level of ownership is very, very important, even above pay in most studies. So that was another key thing. And what was cool is like within two weeks, we had clients going, what, what's different? Something's different. You know, everybody was happier. And of course, it's not Pollyanna. You're hearing the Facebook version, the perfect happy version of yeah. it. But the video is key because it says you're going to feel like this is wrong. There's going to be a mistake and your instinct is going to go back to taking control and making sure that never happens again. And that's when I go to a quote I've heard is the only way employees are not making mistakes is if they're not doing anything. Sure. And so you have to tolerate that. And then you got some of the old guard who just we spent 30 years under this. You do what I say and only what I say. Having to then turn around and manage this new crazy system where people are allowed to think. I tell you, it sometimes it's like herding cats. But overall, the effects are dramatic and the ownership is wonderful. And I think that's one of the reasons we keep our retention and why people can walk in and go, yeah, something's different. Well, when you hire someone, you should empower them to do their job because the goal is that you're not still doing that other role. Right. And that seems really easy. Right. Like that seems, well, that's logical. Everyone does that. It's like, no, but they don't because then they want to micromanage everything that happens and you're not letting a star performer really do their job. And so, yeah, you probably are going to retain the people that want to be told everything and they're going to keep going, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And you're like, I can't get any time to work on anything because I'm so caught up working with the team. It's like, yeah, because your team is all people that are zombies, right? Like they right. need to like attach to you, the host and say, please tell me what's going on. Please tell me what's going on. And you just feel drained. And so you need to have people that want to contribute. I think that's a great thing to think about as you hire people and as you talk to people and just being very honest and open. And if there is a video or there's a piece of content or something that's a filtering mechanism, that's really good. I'd much rather they run out screaming mm -hmm. week one, week two versus, okay, we've tried to train. It's been all this time and it's just not working, not working, not working. But you know what? We're going to keep trying. Yep. And uh, I think that's really smart to, to try to understand that. And what's cool is if you try it, because it, again, it feels wrong and it's gutsy because you're taking away the control. And they've got, I mean, I started this right away. We really started out running this business with the bank allowed us $40,000 of working capital. And that's two payrolls. I mean, that's like, wow, the stakes are high. And so, you know, a month or two in, my office manager, without consenting me, which would have never happened under the previous owner, without consenting me, went out and bought a $1,500 piece of equipment because he and the technicians thought it would be more efficient, more effective, and a better piece of equipment. I was never consulted, and it was the happiest day of my life because I knew that this guy who'd worked under 30 years under the you have to have permission to do anything had the guts to go spend the new guy's money. And it was a great decision. Profitable piece of equipment is wonderful. Second example of this is that, you know, just talking out loud. It's like, gosh, you know, we're building a new hospital. It's going to have 10 exam rooms, not four. You know, man, I hate running around for an otoscope. It just annoys me. But 
to put in, they're a thousand dollars a piece when you buy the kits. I got to equip 10 more exam rooms. Do I spend $10,000 just talking out loud? And then all of a sudden, one of my technicians who now it feels free to bring stuff up that she never normally would have is like, well, why don't we just put two in the main areas that feed the exam rooms? You know, we got to buy four. Well, with that one suggestion, because she had the ability and the willingness to speak up in front of the boss, she saved the six grand. That was a brilliant idea. I never would have come up with it. Yeah. So I love that. And yeah. sometimes the, and this is true on our team, right? And I think the younger, less confident, they're going to be coming and asking questions. And mm-hmm. we see that. But one of the members of our team, he will joke that he's the pain in the ass, <laughs> but he brings the best ideas and challenges us on stuff. And it is wonderful. It's annoying at times. Mm-hmm. And it can feel that way initially, the initial reaction, where you're like, I always tell him like, Hey, keep bringing it. Even if I'm going to tell you, no, like I disagreed, I think you're wrong. I still want to hear it. But most of the time I'm like, yeah, Travis, that's a great idea. We should change that. You're spot on. Yeah. Totally. That doesn't make any sense. No. We need to change that. And, yeah, and that I takes that. confidence in yourself. And then also it gives you the idea. It's like, well, why did I react like that? And it helps you. Am I coming at this the wrong way? But yeah. If they can approach you like that, that's good. Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier, and I say this all the time, very intentionally with how we announce stuff, how I approach it. We work together. You don't work for me. It's just also weird. It's like when someone calls me Mr. Douglas, I'm like, that's my dad, right? Like, it's just a weird thing. And you want people to feel like we're on a team and it's not like, well, you work for me and I have control over you. Yeah, It is a relationship that you both need to say, I want to be here. And that's when it works. And if one person feels like, you know, you're controlling over top of them, they're not going to be there long-term, especially if they're a good performer because everyone needs help and finding good help right now is tricky. Yeah. So Yep. you talked a little bit about building a new hospital. <laughs> yes, sir. Let's talk about that. <laughs> you can take that any way that you want to. And this is the part where I joked in the episode that's come out earlier about video. This would be a little harder in this room to have video, but yep. the smile tells me there's <laughs> there's been lots of fun and it's going to be awesome. I'll come up to Green Bay when it's done. Cool. Um, hopefully... It can be something around maybe like a Lions, like Packers. Too. Like we'll figure out a way like to make some fun and also come see. But tell me about the, so it's 10 exam rooms. Yep. Why spend the money to build that? Because it's not cheap. From what oh, no. Rumors have told me it's yes. not cheap. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, um. so the why. Well, the main why is that we need the space. I can't even describe to you how much I hate coming to work. Because of that sardine can 1970s repurposed garage that I have to, we have to suffer through. If there's any truth to the, your surroundings can change the morale of our team. We're going to be the best team on earth as soon as we move out of that crap shack. So it's 3,200 square feet. We've got 25 employees. We really can only functionally use 1,800 square feet. We've got this huge basement in the bottom that you can't use by code. So three quarters of that building I'm paying for, we can't even use. We got four exam rooms, four doctors, just creative scheduling. And then we like to do, we've purposefully moved towards higher touch medicine. We'll do wellness. It's not our focus. We'll do product sales. It's not our focus. What we sell is a little bit of experience, both. And actually that's the ways we sell experience, both the client experience as well as our experience. And that's what we're trying to do for multiple different reasons. Number one, it is better for team morale. Number two, it's a better strategy long-term. We're not competing for the bottom dollars. Number three, it's going to make us competitive to corporate. So it's super important. So that's one of the reasons is our building does not reflect the level of service we think we're providing. 
And there was nothing wrong with it when it was a two-doctor practice built in the 70s. It's just not what we need now. And so I'll probably more details than you really want. Just cut out whatever you want. But I'll keep all the details. Right? Okay. Anything out. I'll tell you, I got to put this in there. I've been through vet school. I know we don't have to talk about this. A lot of other podcasts have too. Your guests have too. Fought through horrible, crippling, suicidal depression. Had two kids or back surgery. They work for the government, man. Just lots of suffering. I could not memorize to save my life. Vet school was torture. This building of the hospital is the hardest thing I've ever done. Wow. And it's because you have a vision and you have so little understanding of the job. It's got to be how my clients feel when I'm going into, when I'm taking their dog in for some crazy surgery. It's like, I don't have any controllers. I don't understand it. You could be screwing me. I'm paying you a lot of money. You could be <laughs> killing my dog. I don't have any control over this, but I have enough control over it that I can screw up this whole process. So that's the hardest part. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. But back to the why. Big, huge tangent there. So then I looked. It's like, where do we go? So went through the steps, did the demographic study. It's a real thing. You really can't move much more than six miles from where you're at. Otherwise, at least statistically and by the census data, we we're going to leave about a half of our clients behind if we move to one of the available buildings that had enough space that could be remodeled. So really that narrowed it down to, I've got a section of the city I need to be in. And of the available buildings there, nothing was able to be remodeled or they wanted like $4 million for like a tiny little shack. It was just overpriced. People were shooting for the moon or it just wasn't going to work. So we ended up buying a piece of land and that's when we knew we had to do a new build. There just really wasn't a way around it. And then we started the process, which for me started way back, actually mid 2020. So we took over the practice. This is all boils down to the building. So we're getting somewhere. Took over the practice in 2019. It's me and my associate who's a rock star and has put up with a lot. So thank you, Amelia. And before COVID, I'm sitting there going, why are we so tired and stressed? Something's not right here. I barely know what I'm doing yet. So I get the well-managed practice book, look through it and go, oh, it's because our client numbers and our transaction numbers says we're a four doctor practice. Well, that explains a lot. And then I go, where am I going to put four doctors? Yeah. So we bought and basically immediately figured out that the cap to our success and our financial success was producers, the numbers of producers, not going to be able to fit them in the building. Basically, it was at that point that I realized we're going to have to build. And then COVID hit, which was awesome. So our demand went up, our efficiency went down, and we still only had the two doctors. Mm -hmm. So we struggled through it. But it was interesting because you go through... Like I talked to my first bank and he's like, how come through COVID everybody else's uh, gross went up and your state flat? And I just wanted to reach the phone and choke him. Mm. I was like, we already had capacity. What was I supposed to do? That's why I need the building, sir. Yeah. So came to VMX actually back in 2019. That was, that was when I started to know I, 
it was going to be in our future. I hadn't decided all this yet, but so I wanted to know something about it. What was I going to have to know before I went on this process that at that time I thought was going to be like four or five years down the road. So I went to VMX, met some people, learned some things. They had at that time a two-day workshop beforehand where you could learn about building buildings. So meet the architects, meet some people who've done it, meet the you know various building contractors, start to get an idea of some of the lingo, ways to approach it. Do you just hire somebody and they take care of all of it? Do you insert yourself in there, you know, get some architect, and then you go hire everybody, and then you manage the construction? There's lots of different ways to do it. I knew immediately, and I've always thought, hire the best understand you're going to pay them, shut up about the paying them as long as they're worth it and let them do their thing. Surround yourself with brilliant people who might be expensive, let them do their thing and you're all going to make money together. So that's when I decided we're going to design, bid, build. And so that basically means I hire somebody, a company, am I allowed to say who they are? Yeah, sure. Totally. So I hire TWC. There was a couple other really good ones out there too. Just talking with the folks. And I mean, we were joking around. It's sort of like you and I before the beginning of this. We we're just joking around, telling stories, being real people. So I immediately bonded with them. You're going to have to like the people you work with because you're going to be working with them a lot. And it's going to be a very high stress situation. So ended up hiring TWC and they basically talked me through like, what do you want? What do you need? I had like a long, basically sort of like a survey. Like the first one, I think was like five or six pages. The next one was like huge. But it's just kind of what you want, who do you see, what your clientele are, how you run your practice, because somebody who's running appointments every 10 minutes is going to have a different design than somebody who's running them every half hour like us. Somebody who does exotics is going to an exotics ward like we do. If you only do cat spay neuters, it's going to be a completely different hospital. So that's what we decided. And actually, somebody is able to create a drawing out of that, which I find really fascinating. <laughs> so I got my drawings and then it was really going to war with the banks. And that's what it felt like. It's just, I've been at war <laughs> with the banks since 2020. And then my side battle, it's World War II for this. So my World War I is with the banks and World War II is with the city. So getting bankers to understand that we're, we're limited, our growth is limited by this building has been the most difficult part. It's because they want to see that you can earn the money. And I literally can't earn the money until I have the building. And so that automatically narrows down like 90% of the banks on earth because they want historicals and they want to see that you can pay it. So that's been the biggest struggle because all of the, like the five, the SBA 504 loans, you learn the lingo when you start getting into this, but like those require lots of collateral and appraisals to come out and lots of different things that just aren't going to happen with a veterinary, a veterinary building because most of those loans go to people who are building strip malls. And when you get a comparable, they're like, why would you spend $400 a square foot on a building? There's no way you're going to make money for that. And a lot of these local banks don't realize that what I tried to explain to somebody, I didn't get a loan, but the best way I described it was I bought a radio surgery unit. I spent $13,000 on that machine. I do not expect to sell it for $15,000. That's how they're looking at your building. You buy a building for $4 million. They expect you to sell it for five or six million dollars. Everybody who buys real estate pretty much does. But that's not how I look at this. This is a tool. I bought that radio surgery unit. I'm going to make $30,000 with it. And it's either going to get sold on eBay for 50 bucks or trashed. Okay. That's how I look at the building. I'm going to take care of it, of course, but it's a tool. It's not the asset. And bankers don't think that way. Yeah. At all. 
you have to, again, you have to understand where they're coming from. If you screw this up, then they own a hospital they have no idea what to do with. So I do get it from their perspective, but that's been part of the frustration. And that's where the war is. Convincing them that I know what I'm talking about. Convincing them I know how to run a business. Convincing them I can get them paid. So finally accomplished that right around the beginning of 21. Got somebody on the line. And then I, what I tell people is walked into a wall of stupid called the city of Green Bay. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of, they think what they're asking me to do is has a lot of purpose. And hopefully I just didn't just lose my building. So no one from Green Bay is listening that's anymore. Right, great. We lost him earlier on when you trashed Rogers. They okay, turned cool. it off. Uh, great. Excellent. <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> so zoning and rezoning and finding out that your paperwork for that land was filed with the state one way and the city another way. And so you got to rezone for this and rezone for that. And then you've, you've gone all this work. You're watching the interest rates scream higher. Like at this point in the story, because I actually looked at it, December of 2021, my offer was for 4.45% interest fixed for seven years. My one that I just accepted a couple weeks ago, 8.25% interest. All of that Delta was because of the city of Green Bay waiting for them to get the crap together. Thanks, Jay Powell. Exactly. Yeah, I don't like that guy. <laughs> but so what ended up happening is then you got to have the civil engineer to make sure because in the city of Green Bay, rain cannot leave your property. And if your neighbor's water comes onto your property, that water can't make it to the street either. So I apparently need a pond to collect all the rainwater that falls. And I think they know that this is a farce because then the landscape guy hired by the city is going to make me plant the pond. That's right. You heard right. I have put plants in my pond. And the thing that makes me the most mad is that this is probably going to turn into anywhere between two hundred fifty to 500000 extra dollars onto my project. And if you know anything about business, it's not the business owners that pay. It's the clients. It's the residents of Green Bay that are going to pay for all of this. And that really irritates me. So while we're figuring all this out, by the time we finally got approval, but, and then backing up until you get the building permit, you're at the mercy. So you just have to smile. There is nothing to do with that. Another interesting thing I found out is that at least in Green Bay, I don't know if this is for somewhere or other places, they have minimum sized buildings. You know, I bought a two and a half acre piece of land. I was like, great. We can expand if we need to. This is brilliant thinking, Dan. <laughs> you're so smart. And then they're like, yeah, well, two and a half acres is about 100,000 square feet. And with the foot area ratio ordinance in Green Bay, that means you must build a minimum sized building of 11,000 square feet. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I bought a big piece of land to make sure that my smaller hospital was going to be able to expand. No, you got to build that now. Oh, so that's another 90 days. Now we have to split the parcel. And now you run into the fact that split parcel, SBA loan that I got, won't loan on part of the parcel. So now I either got to fire sale it or what we did is work with my accountant and my lawyer. All of these are creating fees, by the way, is to split the land and sell it to myself. So it's just ridiculous stuff that you're dealing with. It's like none of this is getting me a veterinary hospital. So it's irritating and it's expensive. And I thought I had myself prepared for that walking into it. And I didn't really. But again, it irritates me because of it. it's my clients that I'm they end up paying for this. Sure. So finally... So we started in mid-2020, actually, you know, the plan started in 2019. We finally now have the funding under control. The architect is just about ready to submit to the state. The parcel's about to be split. And if everything stays on track, 
We should be building when it thaws, so roughly March or April. And then we should hopefully be in the building this time next year. So that is the goal. And then circling back, the other problem you run into is everybody you ever talk to, they say, don't build for what you need. So with 3,200 square feet, we can run it with two doctors. I've already got four, including me. So you're going to double the square footage at 6,400 square feet. And then you don't want to build for what you need. You want to build for where you might be going. So that's why my building 7,700 square feet. And then what is the first question out of the bank's mouth? Why do you need a building that big? Yeah. So that's part of the war. <laughs> so, so much there to, <laughs> to unpack. No, it was great. And I think that helps people understand, A, the length of a project. Yeah. Right. And we've had some folks that do build design and architecture work talking about, hey, three to five years, you need yes. to start planning in advance, planning in advance, planning in advance. The other thing that's going to, you'll get a laugh out of this, dealing with the city in the state. I know you're already kind of a libertarian tent because we've chatted lots. Yes, this has to make you believe small government, oh. man. <laughs> I mean, come on. Right. Like that is just infuriating because you're exactly right. At the end of the day, it's like, well, I have to pay for all this at some point. Yeah. And that comes from the business revenue and the business revenue is from people that are bringing you know, their pets to you and, and trusting it. it. It is frustrating. And so much of it is not, they're not helping the citizens of Green Bay. No. What they're doing is just creating more work for this person that they know. And I've dealt with a handful of people that have owned businesses that this is not new information. So no. it just drives you crazy. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, why? Why all the racket? It seems like a racket. And I think some of the other podcasts I listen to about how to approach life is almost everything that you don't understand can be explained through the lens of either sex, money, or power. And I'm fairly convinced I don't understand people's grasp for power. It's just not something that motivates me. But I think that's most of it because so like in the zoning meeting, they were fortunately it was virtual. That was great. Right beforehand, they were talking about a expansion of a car dealership. And this company already owns the land and they knew they were going to build. They just had to get some very antiquated, admitted by Green Bay, antiquated lot line changes and kind of variances, how far you can go to lot line changed, which should be a simple stroke of a pen. One of the committee members voted it down. And her reason was, I can't believe you cut down those beautiful trees. I can't support this. They're his trees. He owns the land. <laughs> and I can tell you that my landscape architect is making me plant $40,000 worth of plantings to come to code. So I guarantee you, when you get the building permit, he's going to be planting more happy trees. But <laughs> what bugs me is that it doesn't make any incentive sense. Yeah. I mean, my taxes are going to go from 5000 a year to 85000 a year, all to the city of Green Bay. You would think they would be rushing to help me but they're doing everything they can to make the project more expensive. Mm. It just drives me nuts. So I, it has to be power because yeah. it's not money. So yeah, another client. So they're leasing. They're in a large city. I'm not going to, uh, she can listen to the podcast. She's probably gonna be like, I know he's talking about me. <laughs> what she's explained in the stuff that's going on, because it's a big metro area that's hard to find space. And it was like, you got two options. You got to decide quickly. And then it's got to go to this board you got to hire this person to put this thing in to do this and that's ten thousand dollars just to get them to do this paper to submit it so you can get to talk in february and it's like that's ridiculous that's not even getting to the point of what you're trying to do and it's like why are these cities just yeah anyways we're not going to focus on that because it's either you laugh or you cry right. you just got to be like this level of 
yeah, it has to be power, but it's like, this is just incompetence. Like why we can make things so much easier and people could get to where they're trying to go and be better citizens and have a better city if we just didn't make life hard. But when it comes to advice, just expect to deal with the ridiculous and understand that all the banks and the construction guys are going to build in these contingencies. That's what it's for is you're going to spend way more money. The way I put it, just it just irritates me is when I'm complaining to the staff is like, how many people could I hire for this $50,000 they just charged me? They know that's a person's annual salary and their benefits and everything. It's just ridiculous, but you're going to have to deal with it. So get ready. And that's one of the things at the VMX conference in 2019, they warned us like, if you're in a really big city like New York or Los Angeles, I don't know if this is the correct name for them, but they actually have a name. They're called expediters. They're people whose only job on earth is to work the coagulated system of the city to get your building permits and jump through all the hoops. That's what you pay them for. That's all they're doing. That is exactly the first. It was $10,000 and it's in a big city. Not those two, but it's another one similar type city. Literally, it's $10,000 to get this pushed and it saves four months. Yep. And it's just, (laughs) just, just, just Uh, grin and bear it because you have to. So you're a new grad coming out today. What advice would you give yourself? Understand that it's not important to know what you learned. It's how to find the information. I think one of the biggest failings, and I've been, this is one of the things that's why mentorship is that word that you hear so much. It's like we were just talking with a fourth year student and I've got, I still, you know, two years out and three years out. So for schools fresh in their mind, it's like the comparison of what I learned versus what they learned is I don't even know why they're charging you for this. It's so criminal. What they're not teaching you is if you know how to think instead of what to think, you're already 10 steps ahead of everybody else. One of the best quotes that I have, I mean, I swear to you, whatever room I walk into in veterans, I am the dumbest person there. But I like that because I also know that the answer is I got to look it up. And that is the only way I can stay current. And so the quote is never commit to memory that which can be looked up in books. It's good enough for Albert Einstein. It's good enough for me. And so that is the thing. You know, it's a knee jerk reaction to hear, well, I, I was never taught that. Or, well, what did my professor say about that? It doesn't matter what your professor said about that. All you need to know is when you're looking at a patient is that's a thing I was taught about. And then you run to whatever your source is, whether it's Plums Pro or it's VIN, or there's a lot of these aids for practice that are coming out. And I think they're wonderful. Gecko, I think is another one of them. Yeah. They'll be, uh, uh, sounds intriguing. They were just on the podcast. They'll be, yep. well, we're recording this before they pitch. They pitch tomorrow morning. Cool. I think so. So, I mean, that sounds wonderful because it's like, I've got these symptoms. That's a thing. And I don't have to know that those symptoms are it. I just have to be able to type in a couple of things and then it'll start me flowing into what this could be. And then I put in my training to see if, does this make any sense? And then I help guide the client. So you don't have to come up with the wheel. You don't have to recreate the wheel. You have to know where to find the information and how to process the information. That's what you need to do. Not know everything. In fact, the people who think they know everything are the jerks you don't want to work with anyway. So that's what I think is so key. One of the grads did half of a spay in an all of junior surgery. I mean, that's criminal. I mean, to spend an entire semester and do half of a surgery, come on. And then we wonder why everybody wants, all the bosses out there wonder, why my associates always wanting to refer, refer, refer? Well, they've never done it. And so you have to understand who you're hiring. Are you committing to teaching them? Because if you just accept that, 
it goes so much smoother. But the problem is, just like I am struggling with, I can't, I am really having a trouble doing a good job running the business and doing a good job being a veterinarian. Well, I've got three full-time jobs. I'm running the business, I'm practicing with my own patients, and I'm really trying to be a mentor. And to do that well is almost its own full-time job if you actually care about the people you're mentoring. And that's what I think new grads need to understand is use the tools at your disposal, know where to find the information, understand you don't have to know what that information is. You just have to know what to do with it once you find that information. So A, it's a humble approach, what you just talked about. And I think humility is super important in anything that we do. Second, the idea of practicing medicine, Mm -hmm. just like (laughs) this probably get me in trouble. Trust the science. I have an issue with that, right? Science is an exploration of testing different things, right? Just like practicing medicine, you're going to learn along the way and you are practicing to get better. You never get there. You don't arrive, you practice. Yep. And so to me, as someone that is not clinically trained, right? I've heard that a handful of times. I think it's a beautiful way to approach it. So if you're a young grad, you're not supposed to know everything. No. And that's okay. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to mess up. And it sucks when, and I've had these conversations, it sucks when you mess up and it's like, yeah, there are repercussions from that and something bad happens and you lose patient and it sucks, sucks. And it's like, you need to have people around you that will support you that are like, Hey, you know what? I could have done the same thing and it would have happened the same way. And you cannot, you know, wear that as like, it's your fault and all that stuff. Cause sometimes you just, you can't, you're doing the best that you can. And so as long as you're committed to that, I think it's great. Maybe you'll get some pushback on this, but I think, so the show's about, I get pushed back. Good. Of things. A good boss should understand if you have the guts to say this and man, does it take a lot of guts, but I did this early and often in my career. Number one is look a client in the eyes and say, I have no idea, but I'm going to find out. It may not be today, but I'm going to find out. Obviously if it's an emergency, you got to do something, but most things in general practice, you don't have to have the answer in 15 seconds. And you get so much respect, just fierce loyalty by honestly looking someone in the face and going, I don't know, but I will find out. And then sometimes you have to explain the ways you're going to do that. And the second thing is when you make a mistake, not if, when you make a mistake, when you kill something that you should have known better, you look that client in the eye. It's usually after they're dead. There's not much fixing to do. But if you make a mistake in surgery and you go, I screwed this up, I'm going to help you fix this or... Let me know if you don't trust me anymore. And that's cool. I'm going to talk to my colleague. Now you pick the colleague. I'm going to tell him what happened and we're going to work through this together. So I had a lot of differences business-wise with my my most recent boss, the one I bought from, but she was a wonderful veterinarian and she had some awesome mentoring things. And the first thing she says is when you get into trouble, you fix the animal, you fix the problem. We worry about the hurt feelings and dollars later. You fix the problem and then you admit it. And right there. And then the the word sorry keeps you out of a lot of lawsuits, especially if you are. If you feel bad about it, there's nothing wrong with saying sorry. You're not admitting guilt. You're being a human. And that's what your clients are going to react to. And they're going to draw to you like a magnet. Totally. It reminds me of the, so I don't currently own a motorcycle, but I did for a long time and always liked that. And it's like, there are riders that have crashed and will crash. I wrecked a motorcycle. I don't think I ever told the story. We were in Austin, Texas, took our motorcycles down Had a, one of my good friends guy I live with his best friend was going to university of Austin, PhD, wicked smart, like insanely smart, but you would not know that talking to him. He's just like a regular guy. Then he's like 
showing us all these machines and stuff. And I was like, wow, like, how does he do all this when he just seems like a normal guy? You would just go have a beer with and hang out and smoke meat, whatever. But we were out in the hills around Austin. And when you're riding a, on roads, you don't know, you shouldn't go as fast. And it was like, hey, the sign said there's a curve. Didn't say it was a U. I ran out of road. I flipped over the front of a motorcycle at 45 miles an hour. Right. And I always wore a helmet, had the stuff. I was fine. Didn't break anything. Was bloody. Little shaken up. I was able to ride back, which was like 30 minutes to town. My bike was a little screwy, but like you learn lessons from that and you have to just either mentally say, I'm going to get back on and I'm going to get back. And I continue to ride after that. I didn't stop it. Had some things to fix. Right. But you have to just deal with those things. Or I could have just said, I'm never going to ride again. I'm never going to touch a motorcycle. I'm scared. Yeah. It sucked. I couldn't even drop an F bomb. That's how fast I could flip over the front. Like I couldn't get anything out of my mouth. I just remember bang, 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 bang. And it was like slid around and I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. I'm still alive. Like we're good. (laughs) And then you kind of, again, address it from there. So it is wild. So the other thing that I can say, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but I think it's critically important is this was what I learned growing up and I have taken through my career and it served me very well that my brother did not learn. I found out it's much easier to find somebody or trust. For me, that was my parents. And when they say, don't do this, I know that they love me and they're trying to protect me. So I didn't do that. And it served me very well. So I can listen to you. And that's one of the reasons I owned a motorcycle for a short period of time. And where we drive back and forth to work, there's a lot of deer. And I was like, you know what? I got two kids and I got 20 staff all relying on me. I'm doing this for gas money. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to hit a deer someday and I'm going to get creamed. So I'm going to listen to what Isaiah just said. Is like, you either have crashed or going to crash. And what do you want to be? Do you want my brother is the person who will crash? I'm the guy who will go, you know what? I don't want to crash. And I accept what you just said, Mr. Experience. So if you can find a mentor you can trust, listen to those things and don't try to find out for yourself. Yeah. Well, and part of the reason why I sold it to you is when I met my wife, she had no interest. And it was, I can either do this by myself or I'm going to try to force something that doesn't want to happen. And oh, by the way, weddings are expensive. And I was like, hey, I got some money here that I could sell. I don't need more maintenance. I don't need insurance. So it was an easy decision, right? And I joke that someday maybe I'll get one again. But yeah, same thing. Two kids. I have a business. I have a lot of other responsibilities that sometimes you have to say, this is a selfish decision for something that I want that probably isn't the responsible adult thing. Because I have two kids that need me that I can't go make that decision. because. When it was just Isaiah, yeah. worst case is Isaiah's gone, right? right? Now it's there's people that rely on me. And I think that is really, really important. It goes back to being a practice owner too. You're signing paychecks. You have people with mortgage payments, car payments, their kids' education. That's a lot of responsibility to say, I have to show up and be there for them. They work with me, not for me. Yep. But yeah, when I make the big decisions, I have to make the decisions that are there to make sure the business is sustainable and the decision that's right for them too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, leaders eat last, right? I don't know who said that, but it's a great... I think it, yeah, I think it's a cynic book, but I'm not sure. Yeah, something. And that's actually, this is really off topic now, but like I said, you can cut out whatever you want. There's um, no cutting out. <laughs> <laughs> if we go four hours, you might cut something out. Yeah. We're going to go for the all-time record. So. Okay, cool. Cool. I got, um, I got a couple more questions. So we'll keep That's going. actually how I got to be your client. I have an insanely nerdy interest in macro finance. I love it. It's fascinating to me learning how the financial plumbing system works. 
that's one of the reasons we bought the business is almost everybody I know who owns a business or is in real estate, which is another one of my side hobbies, has read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so it was after 2008 when I, we had some serious financial problems because of 2008, when you work on commission and you have like the great recession, you know, I had medical bills on top of a $40,000 loss in annual salary because of my commission that I'd been earning. You learn to do something different. So I was like, okay, obviously the stock market doesn't go up forever. So that was a lie. Invest in your 401k. You're going to be fine. That was a lie. I just watched 50% of it evaporate. And I am one pen stroke away from losing my job because if it comes down to me or the boss, it ain't going to be the boss. So I can either accept this or I can learn what happened and fix it. And so then I learned just enough to be dangerous. Lost a whole bunch of money trying to trade my own 401k account because I was making all the mistakes that you read about in the book. Everybody who tries to run their own money, unless it's your full-time job, you're just going to make terrible mistakes and you're going to end up worse off. So they're like, you know what? If you can't make this your full-time job, you find somebody you trust who can. And that actually took way longer than it should have because there aren't many people out there like Vincere who understand that financial planning is not just a will, extra insurance, and 401k, have a nice day, here's my fees. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And finding people who understand that is very difficult. And this is not a paid spot. But I was about to say, I was like, I appreciate no, it. No, no. Um, but and- this is how I run my business. This is how I do my medicine. It's like, this is a pain point. I need to do something. I can't turn it over to somebody else that I don't trust. I know enough about it to be dangerous. So I go find the pros. And that's what I do with my building. That's what I do with learning my medicine is I go to the pros when I've got a pain point I can't figure out. You just humble, curious, but then also understand, you know, when you start reading over and over, those who run their own money generally make all the stupid rookie mistakes. When they talk about dumb money, that's you. Just trust somebody, do the research and go with it. So that's how we ended up being clients. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple rabbit holes that I might say for other future episodes, but a appreciate that, you know, I will joke, but this is not true. Like the checks in the mail, right? The, the, <laughs> yeah, no. That is not the way that that's it's actually the other way around my checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Two other questions for me. And then obviously, you know, you've listened to the podcast, yep. you, you can fire away and you know, we'll see how long we go when you get some questions, best and worst advice, best advice you've been given, worst advice you've been given. I've been given a lot of good advice. And it, it doesn't have to be the, the number one. It can just be up there. Cause I think that is a hard question. If someone asked me, I don't know if I'd have a perfect answer for them. Best advice is if you point your life Some of this is sort of a, you don't have to be a Christian to do it this way because the effect is the same, but it came from Judeo-Christian principles is that if you focus on serving somebody else, if that's your focus, you will be successful. That's it. You can do it on a small scale. You can do it on a big scale. But if your focus, your number one goal, if you're a faith-based person, obviously, First goal is serving the Lord. But after that, if your number one goal is to serve other people, you really can't fail. So that's why my wife and I's mission is as the two owners, we serve our staff and our staff serves our clients. And the reason that to the chagrin of some of my clients, why am I taking on, you know, we had a great profitable business cash flowing, like as my banker said, that cash flows like a pig, which I don't know pigs cash flowed, but... <laughs> Why are we potentially taking all that risk? And and it's because in order for me to do my best, if I can serve so many people a day, but if I can, and this is way oversimplifying it and it sounds egotistical, but essentially if the goal is to make a bunch of mini me's 
who at least have the same goals, the same general concepts, then I'm serving three people at a time by teaching my associates the good stuff that I did. They go forth and serve our clients that way. And the more of the copies that you make, the more people you're benefiting. And so you just have to decide. Now, you might be the person who's like, nope, I only want to serve the people in front of me. And that's great. You can still be successful. Oh, if you're a stay-at-home dad or mom and your only job is to serve your wife or husband, you're going to be successful. Maybe not monetarily, but that's not always, that's usually not the end of success. And when it comes to business, when it comes to making money, if you serve people well, the money follows. You only have to think about it from the owner's perspective, making sure you're not doing something stupid. So all of my financial decisions are just making sure I'm not squandering the resources that I've taken in from serving other people. Yeah. I love that. Worst yeah. advice. Yeah. One thing real quick. So yeah, there's sure. another, I know that he is faith-based as well, but he always talked about this attitude of gratitude. And I think he struggled with some mental health stuff and challenge. He's like, when I give away to other people and, and, and pour into them, right? He goes, that's when life changed for me. Yep. And that's stuck with me. And I think it's super important, right? Yeah. And the idea of if you do what's right and you're a high character person, you do your job well, you will make money because there are a lot of people out there that are just trying to say, I need a quick buck. I'm going to push, 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 make as much as I can extract as much value and then move on. And if you're like, I'm here, I'm going to do stuff. Yeah, I'm going to charge what I do. Pretty sure you don't give away veterinary care. Nope. You still charge for it. Yes, sir. That's not a guilty thing. Nope. I don't think anywhere in the Bible it says that you can't make money, right? Right. <laughs> so I think so many different people look at, and I just saw this the other day. I don't know. It was on Twitter or someone that I think he's a pastor, but he was talking about like, there's nowhere where it talks about that money is bad. It's the love of money and the pursuit of that being the main thing. If it is the pursuit of I'm taking care of people and I can do something that I'm really talented at, I can make money. Then you know what you can do with those resources? You can then give back again. Yep. And it's really cool to then see what that money can do. But anyways, bad advice. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Hey, you're welcome. This time it's different. This time is different. Oh man, we have some fun with that. <laughs> Anytime I've ever heard that, I don't have anything specific really to go into because sure. there's just so many differences. The, anytime I believe that somebody's told me this time it's different, it's usually ended up in tears or pain or loss. Uh, it's never different. Again, I, back to the, there's nothing new under the sun. Or the other way I've heard it phrased was new news is just old news happening to new people. This time is never different. And so... The way my wife and I operate is that because of some of those lessons of this time is different and no, it's not, is that if you're coming up to something, you should be able to find someone or something or some reference to how this was handled before successfully, and you can get through it. It doesn't mean it's not going to struggle in the meantime, but this time's never different. So anybody hears you say that, you run. That is also, they've coined that the most dangerous words in investing. And that's the way I always look at it. And I think I've been guilty and I've talked about it, right? That I do think that there are some things that are fundamentally changing. And that's a whole other thing that you should go listen to the 2022 review because it'll come out before this episode. I talk about a lot of different stuff in there, but. Well, I would say, you know, it's also boils down to. Human nature doesn't change though. Correct. The root of the issue. So let's say your favorite subject, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not. How are we going to weave that in? Man, I know. Just, just checking all the boxes. Bang. So Bitcoin is not new. Why can I say that? Yes, of course, the approach is different. Blockchain is different. The digital form is slightly different. But the desire for sound money and accounting principles is not new. Correct. So that's how somebody like me can jump on board with Bitcoin. I'm a big gold bug. Well, 
Bitcoin is just a divert, in my opinion, fighting the same fight, diversification of sound money. That's how I look at it. And the, the pain points that gold creates, Bitcoin solves, and the pain points that Bitcoin solves, gold solves. Sure. It so it's not new. It's just different. Sure. What's a non-consensus view that you hold that maybe your peers in veterinary medicine don't hold? Non-consensus view. So if you got a room of 10 of you, seven of them would be like, Dan, you're crazy. I don't agree with you. And they'd want to maybe not fight you for it, but just argue about it. I think this attitude is changing. Maybe it's not quite that, but I think for at least non-consensus for my age group and generation and older. And what is that? Do you mind sharing? I sure. I'm 44. Okay. So I am a, I am a, an Xer. Yeah. And funny thing is you get this thing with hello boomer, you know, boomers and millennials at each other. Just remember, there's a generation between you that hates you both. Yeah. It's like there's a meme where the people are fighting. There's the dude like ripping off the bong in the background. Like that's Gen X. And then the people fighting is the boomer and the millennial. Yeah. And then they're just over there like, yeah, uh, you know, minding their own business, doing their own thing. But I think that millennials, some of the stuff that we roll our eyes at, and I do it too, it's like they get pissy when it's five o'clock and that cat has to come down at 445 because it's having a problem. And a millennial might roll their eyes and be pissy about that. And that, oh, it's just millennials and they don't know how to work and blah, 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 blah. Or maybe they've got this work-life balance more healthy than we do. And we could learn something from them. So that I think is a non-consensus view for my generation. Like, look, they may have that part figured out way more than we do. That uh, maybe the 70 hours a week I'm putting in isn't healthy. Oh yeah, but that's just what you do. Maybe it's not. I think some people might fight me over that. It's like, oh, they got to pay their dues. Eh, I'm not sure. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that was a good one or not, but. There's no good or bad. Yeah. It's just, it's what you think. That's the beauty of this structure of this. Yeah. So here's the moment you've been waiting for. Yeah. What question or questions do you have? What do you want to chat on? Oh, personal, professional, I'll, I'll, vet med, non-vet med. I'll throw two out there. Okay. And you can pick. Yeah. Or I'll answer both of them. Um, so my stereotypical view of veterinarians is we're all a bunch of type A's who don't want to listen to help, who are cheap. How do you deal with us? I mean, I would not want to sit in your chair trying to talk to, in my opinion, a lot of veterinarians, I think this might be another non-consensus view, is that so few people, almost all of us seem to want to cost cut our way to prosperity instead of create value and grow revenue. There's two ways to make money. One is to cut costs, but you only do that so far. The other one is to grow revenue. And I don't think enough of us focus on the growing revenue. And I think then talking to people who aren't focused on revenue, who just want to cut costs, asking them to pay a monthly fee for advice that they don't want to hear, trying to talk to somebody who we always think we're the smartest people in the room, that's got to be agonizing for you. And I was wondering, is it? Or how did you pick us? And then the second question is... So your business, you and Josh started your business right about the same time as I bought our business. And I think you guys are pretty spread out, right? How do you scale? Because it looks like you've grown since I started being a client. How do you scale and be this distributed and keep everybody pointed in the same direction? As my clinic grows, that's what I'm the most concerned about is the more people you get there, the less touch you have, the more you might lose that culture. So you can pick whichever question. You no, want. I'm going to answer both of them because they're both great. And we are setting the record for the longest episode yes. ever. We haven't even hardly talked about Bitcoin yet. 
we can wrap up with Bitcoin. I think Travis, oh shoot, what's his name from Student Loan Planner was the longest episode I ever did. And it was like episode three or four. This will be be there. When I add all the other stuff into it, it'll be long. So working with vet med, I was told early on when I said I wanted to work with veterinarians, hey, they don't make enough money. Hey, it's going to be a slog. It's probably not a good business. And what I said is, well, okay, well, what if I can work to build a business? And maybe this is ego again, right? And this has been a really good conversation. We've been very open, but it's like, maybe it's ego. I want to be the place that veterinarians go for financial advice. Now, I helped create and start the Veterinary Financial Advisor Network. And they're awesome people that are other than Isaiah, Ryan, and Meredith that go out and, and provide financial advice that do awesome work. And you got to find the right fit. And so part of it's just get better advice and guidance. But for the most part, I mean, I talk to people and they're not going to pay and that's fine. And I'm comfortable with that. I've gotten more comfortable with that knowing decisions and things that we can talk about. And it is much more than just save into X and Y. And like, I think find your plan is misunderstood in a way, but it's ideally, it's like, who do I typically work with and how do I want to focus on things? It's like, how do you tie the personal and professional together and then make good, better decisions and get to the point where you get efficiency? Because you're busy, you're running. I kind of cringe thinking about personal finances for me because like I don't do as good of a job I think personally as I could because I'm just like tired. <laughs> I was like I don't want to do my own stuff sometimes. But no, I think veterinarians are the most enjoyable people to work with. So Josh had Great. worked historically more with tech. They treat him like shit. Okay. Tech people are the worst. They don't listen to this podcast. They suck. They okay. treat they have unrealistic demands. They don't want to pay for anything either. And they treat you like garbage. And if someone doesn't want to pay, that's fine. I will always tell them, like, you can always find someone that will be cheaper, do different things. I think what we do, we probably should charge more. And I've had a lot of people tell me we should charge more for what we do. That's beside the point. And I, that's not our goal. Again, going back to, I want to be able to work with people and help. And we can still make what we need to make and live a good lifestyle. And I don't need to have the highest AUM or the highest revenue of any firm out there. But veterinarians on a whole... I enjoy working with them. I want to talk to them. There's very few clients that have ever worked with that are veterinarians where I have not wanted to like have those meetings. There are some clients that are non-veterinarian that won't listen to this podcast that I've had. I maybe don't look forward to those meetings as much, okay. right? So for the most part, this is what I enjoy doing. And it makes it so much easier for me because I can say, this is who I serve. This is what I want to learn. I can get quasi obsessive about the industry and take a different view and say, I see this opportunity in veterinary medicine. Let me tell you, because you have all the clinical skills, this is what I would do in your shoes. And let's like go build this cool thing. Cool. And that's what I enjoy. The other question. So I don't know if that, does that answer it? It does. I'm glad that I have a pessimistic old man grumpy view. Of yeah. And I mean, I've, so had, I've, had, I've had some conversations with veterinarians where I'm like, yeah, this is a horrible fit. Like we're not going to work well together. And I've gotten, I think a little bolder as I've gotten more established where I'm like, no, we're not going to work together. I told one lady, like, no, there's no way because- it was the weirdest conversation I've ever had. Sure. Weirdest conversation. I don't need to get the details. I no. think, so second conversation, scale. I look at, so this will come out after. So Meredith and Ryan, both on the vet side. Mm -hmm. So that is still, you talk about like building the building and knowing where you want to go. I look at, there's a big opportunity in veterinary medicine. There's a lot of veterinarians out there that need help and advice and guidance that want this, that are willing to pay, that want advice and guidance that goes beyond just saving this, pay down your student loan, blah, blah, blah more like how do we build and grow this thing from a personal side. And so it's growing and getting good people on the team to do that. The challenge is I will have people reach out and it feels great. 
that say, I want to work with you, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. Because if I say yes to everyone, I literally will not be able to do anything else. And saying that, and the way that I look at it is I will be involved, but I cannot be the main point of contact for every single person. I will be involved in the areas that I can add the most value. There are other people on the team that are really good at the other pieces. I will come in for what I am best at. And that sounds really like, oh, you just think you're so, you know, hot shit, right? Like, no, it's just, I can do more that way than if I try to work with everyone personally. And that's the way that I look at it. I can have a fun conversation where I can jump in, do three or four different meetings together, but then I'm not answering all the questions. Because if I answer all the questions, I can't do anything. Right. I, I literally cannot do anything. And so keeping everyone on the same ship. And so like, just again, breaking down Vincere, it's like, hey, we have these different clients. Veterinary medicine is a huge vertical for us. And I'm proud to say from the standpoint of what we've built, that is an area of big growth for the company itself. That again, makes me feel good because there's people that want this, that are looking for it and find us. And so it is trying to say, how do we serve clients in general? What's the experience? Back to what you talked about front desk. This is what we want. This is how people should walk through the process with Vincere. Whether you are a teacher, a veterinarian, you work in tech and you treat our team sometimes like crap, whatever, right? Like there's going to be nuance with that. And so for us, especially in veterinary med, there's certain things that are like, yeah, that's not going to be applicable to other people, but this should be the experience. And so let's say they have a friend that is doing something completely different. You know, they're a W2 employee and they work for John Deere, right? They should still be able to come to us and get really good advice and guidance and feel like they're getting value and be similar, but they don't own a hospital in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so I think that is part of it. And we've, similar to you, put a lot of money back in. And if you ask my wife, it's like, hey, at some point, are you going to like pay yourself? Like I could go make way more money working for someone else, again, as an employee, but that's not been the goal. And I think there's a fine line with that. And there's lots of other fun conversation around that. But it is when good people are there and present, we've always said, yes, we'll find a way to bring them on board. And We'll try to say, this is what we can do. Here's the opportunity and we'll get you there. And we're going to work like hell to make sure that you can live the lifestyle that you want. But here's the opportunity. And we've done that a couple of times where it's like, yeah, this is going to hurt and it's going to suck for a little bit, but that's someone that we need in our team. And so we've just said, yes. So cool. Yeah. So Bitcoin, <laughs> we'll end there. So I have talked about it a lot. I've talked about it at nauseum. What is the biggest thing? And do you think it'd be interesting to have, and I'm trying to find this person, an anti, the bear case. So like the, the anti case for Bitcoin. You think that'd be interesting? Would people listen to it or is it not worth it? I would be interested in, in that. When I'm listening to the podcasts and I hear you talk about Bitcoin, what I, I'm afraid of, because again, I like to serve. I was like, oh, I hope Isaiah is not wasting his time with this. It's just, <laughs> I wonder how many people out there are rolling their eyes going, I came to this podcast for some not to be shielded about Bitcoin. And I'm not saying you're shielded about Bitcoin, but you're talking about it enough that I think what would be more of a focus is, you know, some of the, not necessarily concepts. So like we were talking about before we began is I get the general concept. And I think you've talked really well about the general concept. Why Bitcoin? Now I think we need to focus more on how Bitcoin, like I've either bought in or I'm not bought in. And if I've bought in, I think it is more useful to know, to talk about, well, how will I use this? How will this make a difference for me? Not like it'll make a difference because it's sound money. It's like, it's going to make a difference for you because you're going to be able to like, I can pay my buddy in Mexico using strike. I can, 
self-custody and actually put it as an asset on our balance sheet, which we have done. But how do I do that? So like I've come to you for questions. The, the people who are interested are going to come to you for questions. You know, what is OSHI? What is IBEX pay? What are all these things? And you fire me some podcasts to listen to that, that does some more ideas. So I think you're going to have part of your group who are going to want to hear that. And then the other part of the group just aren't going to want to hear about it at all. And I think the, in my opinion, and again, I don't know if I have a good feel for the audience because again, I thought we were a bunch of annoying jerks to work with. And you said, <laughs> no, you're not. So maybe people are, I'm fascinated by this. I had listened to an interview with Mike Green and somebody else. And I thought Nick it was, Carter. there you go. And I thought it was fascinating it was a great because interview. they're both guys with strong opinions and really well-educated. Sure. But it's also because I bought into both sides of the macroeconomic front and I can understand from both views. I'm not sure that a veterinary audience is going to be that interested in it, but yeah. I would say, hey, I'm just going to stick this in there. Put it in the comment section. Do you want to hear yeah. a back and forth about it? Yeah. And I put it on the Facebook group. And I think the simplest way that I try to explain why it matters, and I think that's always it. Like, how oh, cool. Great idea, Isaiah. Like, why does it matter to me? Okay. You can complain about how much money you make, the debt load, all these different things, or you can do something about it. Yep. And so you can look at your human health peers and they're going to make a lot more money and all this other stuff. Not always, but they could, right? Based on things, let's say you're an associate. How can I position myself to be in a good spot? It's like, well, let's just save our money in a better way. And it is a savings. Like Bitcoin is just money. It's simply just better money. Yep. And it allows you to save the value that you create. So that's why it matters. And I think it matters to every single veterinarian, whether they want to adopt it or not. And I want it to be like, it's not just the crazy, weird person that you know that was into Bitcoin. Like it is more mainstream and you should be able to utilize it as a tool. It is not a fix all. It does not fix everything, but it does benefit a lot of people. And so the other thing, the reason I talk about that a lot too, is like, if someone was like, Hey, I want to talk to Isaiah, they know where I stand on that yeah. and they can come. And I've had people, <laughs> I've had some spouses of people say they're super anti-Bitcoin. I said, grab a beer, let's chat, bring all the questions. It makes me sharper, right? Iron sharpener. Yep. Absolutely. Ask everything. See if I actually know what I'm talking about. Ask all the questions. And those are fun. I enjoy that. And at the end of the day, it's always your money. You make the decisions. You should just know that this is an option and it's not for just crazy people. And you don't have to know everything. You can learn over time. And it takes a long time. I mean, if you ask my wife, it's been an obsession since 2019. I'm still learning. Yeah. And it's wild. So, and yeah. I guess, you know, now that you say now that you say it that way, I think having somebody come up, because again, I didn't mean this to be provocative or harsh. No, you know, but I just a couple it. of times, sure. you know, as somebody who is like, you know, I think more people would benefit from Bitcoin. And then I hear some of the things we're talking about Bitcoin again. And, you know, it was like two episodes before you were talking about Bitcoin again. I was like, is the audience going, ugh, not again? Because I'm with you. I think people need to learn about this and possibly gold. What I think might be more useful for a scientific nerd. So like what brought me to Bitcoin was I already was sold on the sound money thing. But I started realizing that what is a network effect and why does that give it value? Why should I care about? Because if you're coming in to like the gold bugs will be like, it's just digital. It's just bits that people can hack. Quantum computing is going to hack it, steal all your Bitcoin. It's just used for criminals. So I was like, okay, well. Maybe this is all true. It just looks like funny money to me. It looks like something you use in Fortnite to go buy a skin or something. So then I started looking into it. I was like, okay, well, I learned what a network effect was. Well, all right. That convinced me it's not going away. And then when I bought was right before the recent halving. Well, what's a halving and why do I care? Then when you put it into some of the, and this is where the anti-person might be helpful. 
is like even Mike Green, one of his funds, they have a 1% exposure to Bitcoin because he just thinks you should. And that's kind of the kind of moderates are like, even if you just put a percent in, if Bitcoin does what it does and you have this having and this having and this having, which is algorithmic and not changeable, it's going to happen. And look what's happened at the chart every single time. If you put in, like you recommended we do, $10 a day, it's $3,650 a year. It's nothing. But I have a suspicion if you just go two halvings with what I'm putting in now, it is completely mathematically possible that that Bitcoin holding, which is $10 a day, will be worth more than my whole company. And I can't let that go. Sure. That would be stupid to leave on the table. Yeah. And so, you know, I think discussions on, you know, getting people to, okay, if you buy in, great. This is what you need to understand. And then this is how you take custody of it. Thanks to you. We have self-storage, multi-sig. I know what all that stuff is. Yep. And it's an actually an asset on our balance sheet. Yep. I bet people didn't know you could do that. Yep. Yeah. So I've done a self-custody episode. I'm glad we did it before the whole BlockFi Voyager FTX drama. Like it's been out there. I've, I've beat the table or beat the drum on, on kind of the why from that standpoint. But yeah, like moving the global reserve currency. So like what the money that runs the world, I am not unsure that Bitcoin in my lifetime replaces the dollar for anyone that can save a little bit into something as it goes through a monetization process. So collectible nerdy thing, right? Just the internet nerds. And that's not where I came from. I did not come from the tech side. It came obviously from the monetary side. You go collectible store of value, medium of exchange, price your veterinary services in Bitcoin, offer a discount or charge more for your credit cards because MasterCard and Visa have all said that they're going to raise their merchant processing fees. Yep. And then it moves to unit of account when you go to the grocery store and you buy bread and it's like, oh, that's how many sats? I don't know if I'll be old and gray when I see all that stuff happen, but it will happen because there's something called, and I'm forgetting the law, but good money drives out bad. Make the argument why the US dollar is good money. And if you actually are able to understand, and that's where I think fundamentally, it's not veterinary, it's everyone. No one really understands that system and how things are made, but it's like we live in a credit-based debt economy where it always has to expand. So expanding the money supply all the time, all that does is devalue the cash that you're saving. And what I've noticed with a lot of veterinarians is they do a really good job. And this is, you know, making generalizations. They do a really good job at saving, but then they don't do anything with it. They just have cash there and it just melts away. It's this melting ice cube. And to me, the reason I bring up Bitcoin so much is I don't want their valuable effort and the blood, sweat and tears and all the time that they spent and all the student loan debt and all these things to then you just see your hard work go away. To me, I'm doing a disservice back to serving people. You don't have to become a client of Vincere. You should save into Bitcoin. Yep. And like that to me is one of those big pillars of like, what is Isaiah going to stand for? And yeah, I've put my reputation alongside of it at this point, right? I've kind of attached heart of that. And a lot of people have said, that's really dumb. You shouldn't do that. And I've said, cool, great. Just like I shouldn't work with veterinarians. And that's worked right. out pretty good for me. And I've enjoyed it. So it's the same thing where, hey, guess what? You know what? On the right side of history. I can talk to some people and hopefully it is something that can change a trajectory for families in the future because they made some decisions and were maybe pushed a little bit to say, maybe I should save it in this thing. Maybe I should learn a little about it, but it's your own journey. You can't borrow Isaiah's convictions. And I think that's one lesson I've learned from seeing Bitcoin go to 70, 
to basically 17 or 16, 15 and a half. If people are barring my convictions, they're going to be like, why the hell am I owning this? This is the most painful thing ever. And he's obviously a moron. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying nothing's changed. Yeah. I was like the amount in dollar terms, which is not the right way to look at it. The change on that. That's a lot yep. personally, but it has not affected well, a little bit. I mean, I would be lying if it didn't affect a little bit at the beginning, but I'm like, why do I own it? Check, 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 check. Nothing's changed. I still think I'm right. And I'm either a crazy person or it is, hey, the entire world, every single human being on the face of the earth needs and wants good money. Bitcoin solves that. It's bigger than the iPhone. It's bigger than the printing press. It's like fire. And I know that seems crazy to say that. It is similar to that. And we are spoiled in the United States because we've had a stable currency with my air quotes for now. But if you talk to people in other countries, and I think a lot of people from other countries get it quicker because they've seen life savings evaporate overnight. And so that's it. It's like, I don't want people's savings to evaporate, whether it's quickly or slowly. But yeah, I mean, that's why I talk about it. And I, yeah, there's plenty of other great veterinary podcasts that won't talk about Bitcoin. So go (laughs) listen to those. (laughs) But yeah, I try not to beat the drum to where it's in your face every single episode with every single guest where I'm going to ask them. I'm going to always ask every financial advisor. I'm going to ask people I know that have an interest in it, but yeah, I'm not going to bring up people that I've never had a conversation with on it. I also wonder if it would help at some point, if there's a way to like understanding, you know, boiling down the creature from Jekyll Island, how the federal reserve was created that, that dollars are actually credit, what that actually means to you as a person. I mean, probably I just bored 96% of the people who are listening to this just with those five words. Yeah. But, to but why does it matter, Dan? That's the thing. So make it matter. It is, I go to work and make money that then doesn't retain its value. You have to earn your money twice. And that is not cool. Very technical term. Very not cool. That sucks. So why do you have to go hire some money person to then be able to retire someday? Why can't you just, I make X, I spend Y, I have a savings. And then if I want to put my money at risk, I can, but I'm not forced to. And right now you are forced to, if you want to buy anything, any of the things that we want, healthcare, homes, cars, College education. You want to have kids. My goodness. You have to have two people working. You can't afford to not have one. Like it's really hard. You have to make a lot of sacrifices if not. But yeah, it's, those are all the reasons why it matters. Yep. Um, I think if people understood how the dollar was made and had to write out a check for their withholding taxes, there would be a revolution tomorrow (laughs) and everyone would understand why Bitcoin and I will also say gold. Yes. I don't own gold physically, but. I don't hate gold. I think it's fighting the same fight and it's just trying to say maybe we should be financially responsible, which yeah. is what every individual household has to do, or they end up in a bad situation. And it's just trying to bring common sense. So we've talked more Bitcoin than I thought we would. Closing thoughts, things that you want to share. Someone wants to talk to you. Where do you send them? Is it LinkedIn? Is it an email? Is it don't reach out to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah, I mean, understand that I'm trying to be a dad. Uh, I'm trying to run a business. I'm trying to practice full-time and build a building. So please reach out. I actually have a heart for helping people and serving, but I'm really overwhelmed at the moment. <laughs> so www.thegeneralvets.com, that takes us to our contact information. We're redoing our website, so it looks all funky. That's why that's happening. I do have a LinkedIn page. It's woefully out of date. You can reach me through there. But really, email you can call the clinic too. Same, go to the webpage. Let them know that you heard on the podcast and you actually want to talk to somebody because my receptionists are rabid about filtering out. That's good. Uh, just salespeople. Yeah. So 
feel free to reach out to me. Be patient with me. Uh, keep pinging me if you really, truly need to talk to me for whatever reason, because I do want to help. It's just I'm, I'm busy. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time. And I really, really appreciate it. It's awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. So there are a lot of new job postings. I'm going to read through these again. Please let me know if you reach out, connect with anyone, and this becomes a full-time or part-time opportunity for anybody. So the first one is a Central Indiana private practice equine or companion health practitioner, Janison Veterinary Clinic. So JVC is a six-doctor, team-oriented, AHA-accredited hospital with a focus on progressive veterinary medicine, quality patient care, and excellent client relations. Four-day work week with rotating Saturdays, dedicated assistant or licensed veterinary technician, compensation is a base and bonus structure, lots of benefits, too many for me to list, Bayside Hospital for Animals, great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida, minutes away from the beach, who doesn't love that, no weekends, Monday to Friday, 8 to 5, no on-call or emergencies, currently a two and a half doctor, non-corporate, small animal practice, uh, lots of growth in that area, associate position, happy to offer mentorship for new grads, pro-sal, with lots of benefits, too many for me to list. Newport Veterinary Hospital, Newport, Vermont, growing, thriving, rural, small animal practice with a touch of daytime urgent care on the Vermont-Quebec border, seeking the right veterinarian to enjoy the team, full-time preferred, but part-time considered as well, privately owned, value the staff and doctors equally with clients and patients, core values are integrity, motivation, empowerment, cleanliness, education, and compassion. If you love the outdoors, Vermont's hard to beat, list a ton of stuff for you to do there, and on compensation. Basically, it's bottom line. You can write your own ticket within the boundaries of production. The goal is the forward-thinking owner is reasonable, would love to chat and build something that fits for you. And so there are open discussions there on that front. Associate veterinarian, part-time or full-time, Fulton County Veterinary Clinic in Indiana. Are you looking for an oasis in the chaos? Do you want to be valued for your individuality and ingenuity? They offer and strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care, utilize support staff effectively so that the doctor is available to do more medicine and less time doing paperwork, no emergency on call, no after hours, no weekend work will ever be required, um, flexible scheduling, competitive salary between 100 and 150,000, signing bonus benefits, uh, too many to include, but one interesting one there as well is a mental health sabbatical. So those are all the offerings. I'm sure there will be more at some point. I'm going to have to say I can't read all of them, but uh, if you have one, keep them coming. And I hope that is helpful.